We are in John chapter 16. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles there, John 16. Thank you for bringing your Bibles. I mean, I say that as if it's a personal favor to me. No, it's a favor to yourself. I know everything's gone technical, and hey, if your Bible's on your iPhone or your iPad and that's how you're doing it, that's fine. People freaked out when the Bible went into print, too. But I, I want us to continue the practice of having our Bibles and knowing how to navigate our Bibles. Bibles open and our eyes seeing as our ears are hearing, as our hearts are receiving. It's so important. And I know that a lot of... A lot of places don't encourage it even. You know, I want to make it as easy as possible. Well, you know, for crying out loud, it should be a little hard sometimes. It should be a little difficult, a little challenging, right? Well, John chapter 16, picking up in verse 7, Jesus says, but I tell you the truth. Which I love when Jesus says that. Of course he's telling us the truth. But he's telling them things at a time when the truth was hard to believe. What they were hearing, what they were receiving, and where their hearts were at on this Thursday night, this is not easy stuff. In fact, in verse 12, he even says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So he's giving them the truth, the truth that they need to have before the crucifixion that is imminent, the next morning, literally. But he does so, he just says, this is it, this is the truth you can trust me, you can believe me, even if it's hard to believe. And, and we need to understand that sometimes. I'm already preaching, I'm not even done reading the opening verses. We need to understand that sometimes. That the truth may be hard to receive, it may not be what I want to hear, I might not even be comfortable with it, I might have a completely different opinion, but the truth is the truth. And Jesus tells the truth. And it's the truth that sets us free, amen? amen. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Well, Lord, I believe this is true. I'm just not sure if I know what it means. I wonder that night for the apostles hearing it. There was so much that just had to roll over them. So much that their minds took in, but their spirits just couldn't figure out or understand. I thank you that you have given us the time and the privilege with your written word that we can pour over it and rethink it and consider what it was that you meant and what was so significant and so important about your spirit that you taught throughout these chapters on this night. And I pray you will give us open hearts to receive the revelation of your Holy Spirit because we know that without your spirit, there is no real life. Help us understand this morning, Lord, and teach us, Spirit of the living God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm gonna have a seat, but let me ask you all a question here as we get going. Does being a Christian make life easier or harder? Yes. <laughs> Very good answer. Yes. Some would say easier. I think it depends on the day. Some would say harder because there are difficult days simply because we're followers of Jesus. It's complicated, now, to someone who's not a follower of Jesus, of course, I would encourage them to know Jesus and trust Jesus and give their life to Jesus and follow after, the, after him. And they'd ask why, and I'd say, because it's life. It's abundant life. It's a wonderful life. But then they follow Jesus, and life crashes and burns, and they come back and say, but you said. You said that, it, I never said it would be easier. I said it would be abundant. There's a big difference between abundant and ease. But it is complicated, I felt that way all weekend long. Perhaps you have too. Since the ruling came down from the Supreme Court and we see the country right back at the riots, right back at, you know, people upset and yelling and shouting and hatred and vitriol and spite and, and you don't even have to go to one of the inner cities to see it. You just open up Facebook 
And it's really sad to me. And I was thinking about how it is, being a Christian, is it easier or is it harder? And, and the reality is that living for Jesus in a world that is dead set against him is difficult. It is. Declaring life in a culture of death, which is what the whole Roe v. Wade decision really spiritually is about. It's about life versus death. Do you, do you honor life? And, and those who don't, those who honor rights above life are gonna be confused in this world. Trying to stand up for righteousness in a society that celebrates sin. June, this whole entire month is about celebrating sin. It, it, that's, I, it is what it is. Some would be really upset that I said that. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. So again, difficult, difficult in this culture. And the more this culture turns away from God and against Jesus, the more difficult it, it becomes. Learning how to love with grace and truth in a world that is spewing so much hate. No, it's not easy to be a Christian in this world. Being a Christian doesn't make life easier, richer, more satisfying, more abundant, more full, more comforted, more strengthened. I could go on and on, yes. Easier? No, no. It's never been easy. And so when Jesus spoke of his departure, it deeply concerned his friends. There were great times in the three and a half years of ministry with Jesus. Wonderful times. And there were some challenges, but hey, at least Jesus was there, man. At least we could call on Jesus, right? But now he's telling us he's gonna leave. His, his departure is imminent. He's speaking all these dark and shadowy words. And they were deeply upset. If you look at verse six, Jesus acknowledges it. Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. How could you leaving possibly be to our advantage, Lord? You're the leader, you're the teacher. You're the one who feeds us when we're all hungry on the hillside. How could it be better for you to be gone? And they could not wrap their sorrowful hearts around the idea of Jesus' departure. So he said, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Christian life is not easier, but it is definitely a life with advantage. It is life with an advantage. Add that to our list of promises, by the way, of the Holy Spirit. We've been going through and, and stacking them up. We took kind of a pause last Sunday to talk about abiding with him and in him. But think about this. The Holy Spirit, as we said before, is our God's strong helper. The Holy Spirit is given forever or gifted forever. He is genuine truth. He generates remembrance of all the things that Jesus said and did. He grants us peace through Jesus Christ. He is the gospel witness. And number seven, if you're keeping track of this, he is our great advantage. It is to your advantage, he says, that I go away. And we're not talking about getting the upper hand or an unfair edge in the world. Advantage in the Greek, the word is sumferi, and it means literally to bring together for profit. Not financial profit, don't think of it that way. To bring together for success, to bring together for benefit, to bring together for assistance or, or help. Hey, he's the helper. Our advantage, God is bringing something together. Jesus is sending someone to come together with us for benefit, for assistance, for help. The parakleton, the helper, comforter, advocate, strengthener. He is to our advantage. And what's fascinating about this, and you gotta sink your heart into this one, to anyone who wishes they could have lived back in the days of Jesus, he says it is better to be alive right now. It is better for you and it is better for me that Jesus is not here sitting in the front row or standing up on the podium. It's better for us right now than have we lived in the first century and been one of those 11 or 12 apostles walking with us. 
especially if you were apostle number 12. That was no good. But even today, that's hard to comprehend. Hard to comprehend how it's better for Jesus to walk me through life, or better without Jesus here for me to walk through life. I, I want him here. I want to be where he is. You know how many times I hear this every week now? I just want to go be with Jesus. Can't wait till Jesus comes. I just want to go to the clouds and meet Jesus in the air. I'm so tired of this world. I just want to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, but it's your, to your advantage that I'm not here. And we, like the apostles, could go, I'm not buying it. I would rather have you right here so I can stand behind you about 20 feet. And you take it all, Lord, and you do it. So while that's hard to comprehend, there are two things that make all the difference in the world, two things that give us that, that advantage in life. And those two things are very simply his promises and his presence. His promises and his presence. All of the promises of scripture. Boy, even non-believers will go to the Psalms for comfort. Even people who don't understand really what it's all about will pull up scripture sometimes because there's something there. There's some promises there and, and, it, and it offers hope. The promises, boy, to a believer, this is everything. You know, you, you really know, by the way, when you're walking with the Spirit, when his word resonates with you. When the word of God is resonating, when you open the Bible and, and it's just, it's soothing and it's comforting and it's strengthening and all of that, you know you're walking with the spirit, the promises. But Jesus says, I got more for you and that is presence. Presence. As we've talked about a few times now, if Jesus was here, right here this morning, once we were done, we would all go home away from Jesus. But he promises his presence so you never go away from him. So his spirit is with you wherever you are, whatever's happening, no matter how deep or dark or bad it may be or how blessed and wonderful, he's there. He's with us. We can share life with him because his spirit has been given to us. Now, I'm gonna do something here. I'm gonna give you an example and I'm gonna flesh it out more next week. But I wanna give you a heads up, kind of an idea. And the reason is D.L. Moody said something and I'm a big Moody fan. Back in the 18th century, D.L. Moody, great evangelist, preacher, pretty remarkable life, remarkable man. But Moody loved simple examples. In his preaching, he was a very clear-cut, simple guy. He didn't get into heady theology as much, although things that he said were profound. But he loved simple examples. And so he stood up before his Illinois Street Church in Chicago one Sunday morning, and he held up an empty glass. And he said, how can I get the air out of this glass? And his congregation looked at him kind of like you're looking at me. How do I get the air out of this glass? He said, I, I suppose I could get some device to pump out the air, but that would create a vacuum and the glass would shatter. How can I get the air out of the glass without breaking it? And he took a pitcher of water and he poured it into the glass until it filled up and overflowed the rim. And he said, there now, the air is out. The air is out as the glass is filled with water. And Moody said, that is the Christian life. Get the air out. You can be an airhead or you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a great picture, the advantageous Christian life. It doesn't come by extracting sin one molecule at a time. It only happens as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 4.14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. Now I keep a water glass by my bed at night, and the older I get, the drier the mouth gets. Anyone else have that? That's just so much fun. But I keep a water glass by my bed and it's the worst when I reach over at like three in the morning and it's empty. <sighs> and I have two choices. Lie there with my face sucking right out of my mouth because everything is so dry or get up and go all the way into the kitchen and refill the glass and Jesus says, no, living water, is, it's, it flows it's a current, it flows, from, it's a well that springs up. Your glass is never empty. When he fills you up, you don't deplete the resource of the Holy Spirit. You're always full. 
always full. Now, you may not recognize it. You may get confused. You may get all in your soul man or your soul woman, but you're always full of the Holy Spirit. As, as our friend Don Coughlin said years ago, can't get more of his spirit. Once he's filled you with his Holy Spirit, you don't get more of his spirit. He's already given you his entire spirit. So we're always full up. John 7, 38, Jesus says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So you're never out, you're never dry. Ephesians 5, 18, the apostle Paul said, be filled with the spirit. And, and the literal Greek there is actually be being filled with the spirit. Be being filled with the Spirit, which again, is this constant flow. I'm never depleted. Now, there's more to the example, more to the promise of filling than Moody's example explains. And I'm gonna show you that next week. So you gotta come back. I know you're very excited to find out what that is. But verse seven says, I tell you the truth. Again, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the parakleton, the comforter, strengthener, advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now that's interesting. That doesn't mean that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't occupy the same space at the same time. I gotta clear out to make room for him. That's not what he's saying. And it doesn't mean that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't minister to God's people simultaneously. They do right now. The Holy Spirit ministers in you, having filled you. Jesus ministers for you, receiving your prayers, interceding on our behalf with the Father. So there is an interactive ministry going on. So why does he say, if I don't go, the helper will not come to you? He's speaking eschatologically. You Bible students know what eschatology is, the end times. He's speaking of the last days of this current world. The whole idea behind if I don't go, he can't come is speaking of God's timeline. He departs, the spirit comes until Jesus comes back again. And get that down. He, he's here and then he departs and the Holy Spirit is given and remains with us forever, always on us. And then when we go home to be with Jesus, guess what? The Spirit gets out of Dodge with the church and then Jesus will come back again. That's the eschatological, the end times timeline that we are on the precipice of. We are late in the age. I know I've said that now for 18 years. We are even later than we were 18 years ago. And I fully believe that. But we have God's promises and we have the Spirit's presence. And this gives us an advantage to living life in this world, difficult, hard, easy, joyful or not. We have an advantage. Now, Jesus explains something that the Holy Spirit will, will bring to our lost world, something the lost world desperately needs that the Holy Spirit brings. And what's interesting is we can really personalize the next few verses very easily and we need to. But it's also now Jesus, as he's talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit, he begins to talk about something the Holy Spirit does, not just in and for the church, but for the world. In the world, he brings conviction. Conviction. You know the feeling. You're driving down 20, and you look in the rearview mirror, and the lights are flashing. Conviction. Oh, no. I've been caught. And you look at your speedometer immediately. You knew you were speeding. You knew you were hauling down the highway, but you see those lights, conviction. Oh no, I'm caught. That's not really what we're talking about. The Spirit brings conviction. Look at verse eight. He, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that is not random. I've been encouraging you for a while now, when you read something in scripture, don't just assume that God is just spouting random words. The Holy Spirit will convict of, I don't know, sin, righteousness, judgment, you know, that kind of stuff. He is very specific. He is absolutely intentional. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And there's a reason that Jesus chooses these three. As he explains 
this convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Need to jot this down. If you want to just add this to our list of what the Holy Spirit brings, what the Holy Spirit does, number eight on that list would be the Holy Spirit brings grave conviction. He brings grave conviction. That's the last one we're gonna add to the big list this morning. We'll add more next week. The Holy Spirit brings grave conviction. Now I say grave conviction because the conviction that he brings is life or death. The conviction of the Holy Spirit, it is glory or the grave. It is heaven or hell. It is that serious. This conviction is a very serious matter. Before we go further, though, the Lord says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God. As I live. So, so this statement is based on his existence. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live, which is remarkable because that means wicked people can be saved. Look in the mirror and say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Wicked people can be saved that we turn from our wickedness and, and live in him. God's love extends even to turning the wicked, which by the way is proof that our deeds have nothing to do with our salvation, only his grace. It is, however, our deeds that condemn us. And outside of Jesus, that's all you've got, deeds that condemn and so the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, to convict the world. That word convict, the Greek word elechai, is to evoke guilt, <laughs> to reprove or rebuke, or to convince, expose, or bring to light. We don't really like guilt-producing sermons these days. Those are hard to find in the church. Pastors will actually sit up there and call out sins so that people are squirming in their seats and feeling uncomfortable and a little bit guilty. And we say, come on, man. Teach us the Bible, that's fine, but don't give us guilt. Guilt's not a bad thing if it causes you to turn. Right? A am I old school on this, missing it? Guilt when it comes to my conscience, stops me in my tracks and causes me to question what I'm doing that would bring that guilt. When the lights are flashing in my mirror, there's a sense of guilt that comes like, oh no. I don't know if it's more guilt or more than I'm gonna have to pay $200 for a ticket. And no, I'm not talking about a recent event in my life. <laughs> but guilt stops us, makes us think, conviction that makes us go, ah, oh, this is not right. I am engaged in the wrong thing. So the Holy Spirit will evoke guilt. I think the Holy Spirit will evoke guilt in the believer because that kind of guilt that he brings causes us to be sorrowful unto repentance. So it's not a bad word. And conviction is not a bad idea. To be reproved and corrected and rebuked by the Spirit of God, no one does it better. No one knows us better. To do it in such a way that it brings about repentance in our hearts. But the word convict as it's used here is not so much about guilt as it is about exposure. And I think if you look, and the thing about Greek words is we look at the Greek word and we say, well, this is what the word means in the culture. But how is it being used in the Bible? And sometimes the best way, if you're a little unclear, is to say, okay, well, how does the Bible use this word? How is it the word convict used in the New Testament? That should give us some idea of what Jesus means when he says the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let's think that through. The word convict, elechai, is used 17 times in the New Testament, one time right here in John chapter 16, and then it's used in Matthew 18, 15. So follow this through. I'm just gonna read these through really fast which is why we have so many verses. Watch, here we go. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Show him his fault is the same word, elikai, convict him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So that's not about guilt. That's about convincing someone that they're headed down the wrong path. 
That really comes of love. If you love your brother, you're going to go try to convict him if where he's living or what he's doing is taking him away from Jesus. Luke 3.19 tells us that Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by John the Baptist because of Herodias, his brother's wife. The word there is convicted. He was convicted. Herod's heart was convicted by the teaching of John the Baptist about his own adulterous behavior. Conviction. John chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus said, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Same word, exposure. That his deeds will be convicted. John chapter 8, verse 46, Jesus says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Which one of you exposes sin in my life? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. And then Paul goes on to say, he's called to account. That's exposure. That's conviction. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Same word. Ephesians 5.13, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, those who continue in sin, Paul tells young Pastor Tim, rebuke in the presence of all. What if we started practicing that one here at the bridge? Want to watch the numbers go down real fast? Rebuke, convict in the presence of all. First Timothy chapter, uh, Second Timothy chapter four, verse two, Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. I'm so thankful for understanding this now that preaching the word is about not just reproving, the word is convicting. Preach the word and expose, convict. Titus chapter one, verse nine, an overseer must be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Refute is the same word. Speaking of a bunch of unruly, rebellious dudes that were in Crete, Paul tells Titus in chapter one, verse 13, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Talking about some messed up dudes and he says, convict them so that they can have a sound and good faith. Titus chapter two, verse 15, he says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with great authority. Reprove again is convict, it's that same word. Hebrews chapter 12, verse five, the Hebrew pastor is quoting Proverbs three, verses 11 and 12, says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Don't faint in your conviction. If you do, everyone's gonna know. You think about that in a church service, pastor says something that's personally convicting for you and down you go. Well, I guess that guy got nailed. <laughs> Conviction. James chapter two, verse nine says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Jude chapter, verse 14. Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Do you realize that in the coming of Jesus that the entire rebellious world will be convicted of their sin? That is, will be convinced of it. It will be exposed and they will finally see it for what it really is. By the way, that's the only time in the New Testament that the word convict speaks of final judgment. Jude 14 and 15. And we'll hear Jesus address that final judgment in just a minute. But the last use of the word is Revelation chapter three, verse 19, where Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. I convict and I discipline. If you feel the conviction of the Spirit in your life about anything, it's because Jesus loves you. It's because he loves me that he convicts me. So here's the point. There are all the verses. 
And I put them up there so you can refer back to them and think this through. But every use of convict, except the one in Jude, every single one in the Bible, in the New Testament, speaks of exposure. It is a conviction unto exposure. And in almost every case, exposure as a call to repentance. That our deeds would be exposed, we would see them as they are, and we would repent and turn to the Lord away from those deeds. The Holy Spirit brings grave conviction. He does not bring guilty condemnation. At least that's not his purpose. Grave conviction, not guilty condemnation. He doesn't come for the sake of shaming the sinner, but a sober exposure of sin to convince a person of their solemn need for repentance and for forgiveness and for grace. It's that profound realization that I need a savior. Have you had it? You know what I'm talking about in your life? That realization one day where you say, I need Jesus I need a savior. Maybe you felt that conviction out of fear. That's okay. He'll bring the comfort. Maybe you feel that conviction out of a sense of, of overwhelming passion for what he did. Maybe you came to that conviction because you began to recognize who he is and yourself in light of him and you were convicted of him. That grave conviction is one that will save you from the grave. That grave conviction is the one that he brings to bring us to the Savior. Now, the Savior himself explains this better in, in three specific areas that urgently need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen them in verse 8, sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin and righteousness and judgment. We need conviction of these things. So what does that mean, really? Look at verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning sin. Notice he doesn't say that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world concerning sins, plural. It's singular. He comes to convict the world concerning sin. You know who convicts of sins? The old serpent. <laughs> Satan likes to convict you, convict me, or make us feel guilty about our sins, plural. His goal is to bring guilt to make you feel bad to make you wallow, to bring depression and sorrow into your heart. But it's the sorrow of the, of the world that brings death as opposed to the sorrow of the Lord which brings repentance and life. Satan will convince you and convict you of your sins. First, he'll invite you into it. He'll get you all involved with them and then he'll go, look at the mess you've become. Look at what you've done. Well, that's what the devil does. The Holy Spirit convicts of one sin and it is the sin of unbelief how do you know he comes concerning sin because they do not believe in me the sin singular of unbelief it's not sexual sin drunkenness murder theft hatefulness gossip spite all of which are sins all of which are condemning in and of themselves but they are also all just symptoms of a deeper issue and that is a faith issue we sin in unbelief. We sin in rebellion against God rather than trusting in him. And so whatever the sin issue is in your life, in my life, in the world, those sin issues are just, they're just issues of the deeper root. And the root is unbelief. Remember what Jesus had just said, perhaps an hour before he said this, verse one of chapter 14, do not let your heart be troubled, what? Believe, believe in God, believe also in me. If you want a troubled life, don't believe. If you want a life engaged in sins, plural, don't believe. But the sin of unbelief, that's what the spirit comes to convict the world of because they do not believe in me, Jesus says. Sin of unbelief. Go back in John to chapter three for a minute. John chapter three. John 3, picking up in verse 16, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The Holy Spirit comes concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus says in verse 19, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, which by the way is why all the riots always happen at night. Because that's when darkness likes to move. That's when evil flourishes. He says in verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. These are God's deeds in you, that fullness of the Holy Spirit we were talking about. He's at work, he's doing these things, he's producing the fruit. The conviction of sin, it is the sin of unbelief. And listen to me, there has not ever been a Christian nor is there right now. There's not a Christian dead or alive who hasn't been convicted of sin. Right? Have you been convicted of sin? I mean, that's, that's why most of us came to faith in the first place. If you've never been convicted of sin in your life, I got a question, are you really a Christian? But my point is this, every Christian has been convicted of sin and we've got to keep this in mind because it's not us good, them bad. You can say us saved, them lost, but if them are lost, go find them. Us good, them bad is not the right mentality. The advantage of Christianity, life in the spirit and eternal salvation, man, that is still available to everybody who comes under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're not a club that is exclusive to the world. We are a group of people called out of the world, but left in the world to bring the conviction of the Holy Spirit, same conviction we ourselves have had. And, and by the way, continue to have. Anyone still convicted of sin in your lives? Okay, that's good to see. Some of you are like, no, I just don't sin anymore. Well, <laughs> the conviction of unbelief, we all need that conviction. You know, one of the really lame self-help books, there were a whole bunch of them that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. They all had the, you know, big daisies and stuff on them. And, and one of these books that came out had a title that became a platitude of the 1970s. And I remember this as a kid. Some of you will remember this as well. The name of the book was I'm Okay, You're Okay. Baloney. A better book would be I'm Not Okay and You're Worse. No, I mean, <laughs> we're not okay. Without Jesus, you are not okay. And that is the big lie, and it's still believed in the world today. But listen to what Paul says about this. this is, and he's just drawing off of the Hebrew scriptures. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. You're not okay. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. You're not okay. There is not one who does good not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not okay. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. You know what conviction does? It shuts my mouth. It shuts my mouth from saying, but, but I'm okay. But I'm, I'm a good person. Shut your mouth. That's what the law did as it came in. People who thought they were okay began to evaluate themselves based on the law of God and realize, I am not okay Verse 20 says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And through the law comes the knowledge of sin suddenly. And that's the book, Torah. You're not okay, I'm not okay. God is perfect. 
and God is righteous. And the Holy Spirit comes rushing in and picks up conviction where the law left off. Remember when it hit me for the first time in my life, learning about the Old Testament law and realizing how difficult that was and thinking, boy, I'm so glad I'm under grace because it's so much easier. No, the conviction's greater. The, the conviction is more profound because you realize beyond the law, the law was a flashlight of sin in the world, but then I start to recognize beyond the law how much more I sinned. I'm not okay, you're not okay. And by the way, the only logical explanation for all the pain, sorrow, and evil that we see in the world today is the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of unbelief if people trusted God. See, when I say if you believed in God, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about trust. If people trusted in the Lord, we would not see the pain that we see. If people trusted him, took God at his word, we would not know the sorrow that we know. We would not see the kind of division we see in the country over Roe v. Wade if people trusted in the Lord instead of their own rights. I know I keep bringing that up and I'm preaching to the choir. It's easy to do it in here, which is probably why I'm doing it. But we are convicted of the reality of sin in our lives and the sin is unbelief. What's wonderful is as I trust the Lord, as I believe in the Lord, he's taken that sin. In fact, he took that sin on the cross so that I could trust him even more. The sin of unbelief. Without Jesus, we're not okay. It's all rooted in the singular sin of unbelief in God. Now, why does it always come back to faith? Because the righteousness of God is only found in one person. Which brings us to the next one. Verse 10. And concerning righteousness, so the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What does that mean? He will convict the world because of righteousness, Jesus intentionally says, because I go to the Father and you're not gonna see me anymore. I, I don't understand. What, what does this have to do with righteousness? First of all, understand that Jesus Christ, walking in the world, was righteousness incarnate. The perfect man. Did everything right because he, being God, was righteous, is righteous, but as he walked among us in the world, absolute righteousness. So, so what does Jesus going to the Father have to do with conviction concerning righteousness? I'll answer that with another question. How do you get to God? Some said through Jesus. Set that aside for just a moment. How do you get to God? Without Jesus. With no Jesus, how do you get to God? Gotta be perfect, that's it. There's only one way. You have to be absolutely 100% righteous to actually get to God. Listen to the Psalms on this, Psalm 15, verse one. Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your or on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Or Psalm 24. Verse three, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. If you have ever once sworn deceitfully in your life, if you have ever once told even a little white lie, your hands are dirty, you're not going up. The only way to go up is to be perfectly Righteous, who is so right and so pure that death can't hold him? Now we're to Jesus, and now we come to the answer, and here's the point. The fact that Jesus went to the Father proved his righteousness, and that is convicting. The fact that Jesus ascended to the Father proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is the perfect man, that he is absolutely righteous. He said in John chapter 20, verse 17 to Mary, right after the resurrection, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I ascend. Hey, only the righteous can ascend. 
So when Jesus says, because I go to the Father, the conviction of righteousness is in his ascension. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? Why is the ascension such a big deal? I mean, it's cool. I would love to have stood on the Mount of Olives and been there with the apostles and just watched Jesus lift off. <laughs> wow, that would have been awesome. But beyond that, what's the point? Paul talks about the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible refers to, talks about the ascension of Jesus. Why is his ascension such a big deal? Why didn't he just pop out of here? Why ascend before the eyes of the apostles? Because it proved his perfect righteousness. He was righteous, therefore he could ascend to the Father. Now we know, we understand now, he ascended back to the Father from whom he came but the fact that he ascended proved beyond the shadow of a doubt Jesus as righteous. But for you and for me, one blemish, one tiny little spot, one little flake of spiritual toe jam, and you're stuck. <laughs> you're not going anywhere. You might as well be flat on the ground pulling maximum G's. You know, I, I looked this up. I, I, I got thinking about this, and this is a little rabbit trail, but do you know that most people pass out at four to five G's? gravitational force, you hit four to five Gs and that's where most will pass out because blood literally is forced as you experience that G force and you know what I'm talking about, Adam. You experience G force and the blood leaves your brain and starts to be pushed down into your abdomen and down toward your feet and there's oxygen loss and people just will pass out. And they say normally around four to five Gs. There are others who can, I think Maverick got up to 10, right? <laughs> Something like 10 Gs, anyway. In reality, Tom Cruise, when he was making the movie, pulled seven to eight Gs and didn't pass out. So that's interesting that they actually had him up there and strapped in. And, and by the way, seven to eight Gs of force, that is 1,600 pounds of pressure. <laughs> wow. In 1945, Air Force Dr. John, Dr. Uh, John Stapp began researching the effects of G-force on pilots. And in his research, he built a, built a couple of rocket sleds. The first rocket sled he called the G-Wiz. I like that. <laughs> he did, on the G-Wiz, he did 16 runs pulling up to 35 Gs. 35. He lost dental fillings, broke several ribs, broke his wrist twice, but survived and lived to be, I think, about 90 years old. So I'm gonna get me one of those sleds. With his second sled... In 1954, which was called Sonic Wind, he survived a record-breaking 46.2 Gs, which is the equivalent of 7,700 pounds of pressure. Life flat on the ground. See, what we're pulling Gs right now. It's why we're not floating around the auditorium, okay? The, the gravitational pull is what keeps us on the earth, right? We understand that. Imagine lying down on the earth and having 7,700 pounds of pressure laid on top of you and try to get up. See if you can arise from that. See if you can ascend. Any unrighteousness in the smallest degree is spiritual maximum G's. You can't get off the earth. It's enough to hold anyone on the ground or in reality six feet under. But the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. I ascend. There is nothing holding Jesus down. John 6, 62, he said, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Acts chapter one, verse nine, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And verse nine and a half, see, I would write in there because I'm sure it happened and Peter had a little bit of drool hanging down his face. <laughs> they were stunned when they saw this. Revelation chapter 12, verse five. Revelation 12, five. She, Israel, gave birth to a son, a male, Jesus, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron and her child, Jesus, was caught up to God and to his throne. He ascended because of righteousness. Caught up because you can't keep a perfect man down. Wait a minute, caught up? You mean harpazo? Raptured? Yes. 
Revelation 12, 5 tells us that when Jesus ascended, he was raptured. It's the same word that is used for you and me if we follow him. He was the first to ascend. Many will follow because of his righteousness. So we're right back to the trust in Jesus. Now the Holy Spirit convicts us concerning sin because they don't believe in him. So we come to belief, we come to faith. He begins to convict concerning righteousness because he, the righteous one, ascended to the Father and our ascension is based on his righteousness. John 13, 36, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Ascension. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured, same word, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Our ascension, the rapture, is because of his righteousness. It is righteousness that allows one to ascend. It's his righteousness that proved, it's his ascension that proved his righteousness. And, and I'll tell you something. In spite of all the lame Netflix streaming movies and movies coming out and all the stuff that we see out there, all these really weird suggestions that people disappear because of alien abduction or because the climate is angry with them, that's a new one. There's all kinds of madcap, lame, ridiculous ideas about masses of people disappearing and it's all Satan trying to get it out there before the rapture happens so there's an excuse other than righteousness. But I'll tell you what, I'm becoming more and more convinced of this, that when the rapture actually happens, when the church is, as the Bible describes very plainly and very clearly, very clearly when the church is caught up, many will be convicted. There will be conviction on the earth. All you gotta do is read Revelation chapter seven, which tells us that midway into the tribulation, countless thousands will have been saved out from the tribulation. Countless multiplied millions of people who recognize after the church is gone that that's what happened and that this Bible is true and who do come to faith in Jesus. But they're gonna have to wait for him to come back or they will lose their heads in the tribulation, a different study for a different time. But righteousness is required for rapture. Righteousness is required for rapture. James chapter four, verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. <laughs> Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before him. Believe in him. Accept his righteous blood and he will exalt you. That's conviction. And by the way, the, uh, James, brother of Jesus there, is talking to the church He's speaking to Christians when he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This matters because the Holy Spirit, yes, it will convict the world of the righteousness of Jesus, but he will use you to do it. See, we have conscience and we have Christians. Conscience and Christians. The Holy Spirit will work with conscience until the person is completely ignoring that. And the, until, the person, until the conscience, as the Bible says, is seared and unable even to connect. He'll work with conscience, but he also will work through Christians, which is why your righteousness and my righteousness matters right now. You have a part in this. And so do I. The work of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit in and upon my life and how I live my life. What did Jesus say back in John 15, verse 26? When the helper comes that I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also. Well, how am I gonna do that? Filled with the Holy Spirit, you will testify. And listen to me. Not everyone has the voice of the evangelist. 
Not everyone is out knocking on every door. Not everyone is the person who walks up to every person they see in the coffee shop and talks to them about Jesus. I understand that. But every one of us have been called to live a righteous life. And by you choosing righteousness, your life becomes convicting. Do you understand how important that is? If we refuse righteousness, because, yeah, by grace, we're saved, so we're all good. We can do whatever we want. We can go to that movie. We can hang with those people. We can be in that place. It doesn't make any difference. It makes a huge difference. If you're the only one in the group that's not drunk that night, if you're the only one in the group saying, guys, let's not do that. Let's do something else. Why? Because I can't do that. What, are you a goody two-shoes? Yes, I am. But not good enough, which is why I need Jesus. But living righteously, Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma just as Jesus did that so you live your life. Sacrifice. Give up the things that you think are important to you for the sake of righteousness. If the world can't see the righteousness of God in us because of Jesus, what good is our discipleship? What good is our following if they can't see that goodness of God in us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Why is it every time I read about salt, I get thirsty? <laughs> it's no longer good for anything. That is salt that is tasteless, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Jesus says, you, you are the light of the world, which I find fascinating because Jesus is the light of the world. But here he says, you are. So there's only one way that, that works, and that's Christ in you. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. What I'm saying is this. The Holy Spirit, who convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in Jesus, also convicts the world of righteousness because Jesus ascended to the Father, and that same righteousness is in you, is in me because of his spirit, because of Christ. So the admonition is stay salty and bright. And some might say, yeah, I, righteousness is my downfall. I'm just not a righteous person. But he's in you. So pursue righteousness. Seek to live righteously. Ask him for his help when you're finding it difficult in a particular area. Because you were chosen, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, listen to me, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That conviction, that convincing, that change in us, that's the work of the Spirit in you. That's part of what that filling is all about, that he is sanctifying you inside out. The sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Well, then... Through Jesus, we will ascend to the Father. Because of his righteousness, we will ascend when the time comes. Because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has already been judged. This world will be convicted of the same judgment that the devil is convicted of. The judgment of this world is the judgment of Satan. And the judgment of Satan is the judgment of this world. Jesus said in John 12, 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What is set in, cast in iron, set in stone, and that is the judgment of Satan. That is the judgment of the world which is why we're told don't be part of the world because that judgment is the same judgment. 1 John 3, verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. It doesn't say if you sin, you're of the devil. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We need the sanctifying work of the Spirit to ease that sin in us, to wash us clean of those sins, to continue to work on us and change us. We still are gonna slip. We're still gonna fall. But the one who practices sin is of the devil. We're talking a sin lifestyle. This is who I am. 
That's of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And John writes, 1 John 3, 8, the son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Anyone who wants to be a part of the works of the devil will be destroyed. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Slipping down to verse 15 of that same chapter, Revelation 20. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment of Satan is the judgment of the world. And the Holy Spirit comes convicting of that, convicting of judgment because the ruler of this world has already been judged. The verdict is in, the sentence is read, the gavel has fallen, judgment is coming because, listen, this is the other caveat of this, because the world's judgment is so off. The world will be judged because of its bad judgment. Isaiah chapter five, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. I actually saw a posting this weekend I could not believe trying to justify abortion from a biblical perspective. And, and the young lady who wrote it didn't have a clue what she was talking about. The Bible doesn't say anything about the evacuation of a fetus then you haven't read your Bible. I keep bringing that up because it's so right in front of us right now. And, I, and I'm, I've, I've known, I guess we've all known for a long time that there was a large part of the populace that's okay with abortion. But to see the kind of vitriolic reaction in terms of, again, riots, this is all what ha always what happens. Riots and anger and shout outs and, and stuff being posted and hate being spewed because the Supreme Court said, we're no longer gonna federally mandate that abortion is legal, we're gonna leave that to the states. You realize they didn't even abolish abortion. They just put it back in the hands of the states and look at how people are reacting. Flipping out as if, as if the right to breathe has been taken away. It, it, it absolutely blows my mind. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Rick, are you saying abortion is evil? Yes, I am. Woe to those who substitute bitter for sweet or sweet for bitter or who are wise in their own eyes or clever in their own sight. Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know what I call that? Bad judgment. Romans 1.21, for even though they knew God and they did, not, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, bad judgment. Jesus said back in John 7.24, do not judge according to appearance what looks good, what looks right, but judge with righteous judgment. Well, how do I know righteous judgment? God's promises and his presence. I know what's righteous because of his promises, because of what this word tells me. I can test everything against it. And I also know what's right because of his presence, convicting me in conscience, speaking truth in my heart. We must be convicted of wrong judgments. That is, wrong judgments exposed. We need that, I needed that before coming to Jesus to realize my judgment was way off. My judgment was not right. My judgment was not sound. I needed that conviction because conviction of the devil's final judgment will be the same as the world's. And that judgment is coming. And anyone who wants to live or who remains under his authority will experience the same judgment that the devil experiences. John 3:36. he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. One sin the sin of unbelief. One righteousness, the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. One judgment after the ruler of this world. You'll either be judged by the, like the ruler of this world or follow Jesus into eternity. And that's it.
And it's the Holy Spirit that does this. Have you responded to his conviction? Have you heard and recognized the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Christians, if the task before us in these last days seems overwhelming, and sometimes I confess it feels overwhelming to me. Sometimes there are days where I go, how are we gonna get through this? Think about this with me. Jesus spoke these words to 11 men having just arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. You wanna talk about overwhelming? At a time when the entire world did not know him or believe in him. The apostles' eyes at that time, his only followers, their eyes were dimmed by sorrowful hearts. Their minds were wrestling with his soon departure. Talk about a daunting task. And it was right then that Jesus spoke these words and Jesus says back in verse seven, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I will send him to you. Resurrection Eve, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that night, I guarantee you, every one of those apostles there in the room slept more soundly than they had slept in weeks under the comfort of the very present spirit in their lives. 50 days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles and 3,000 people were saved instantly. And the word continued to go out and continues to go out. It's been going out for 2,000 years. If you feel overwhelmed, we have the promises of God. Praise the Lord, but that's not all. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, upon us, working in the church and active in the world today. Hallelujah, it is not overwhelming. Hallelujah, he has overcome it all. But I'll end with one last D.L. Moody quote for you. He said, if this world is going to be reached I am convinced it must be by men and women of average talent. That is to say, people under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the recognition of the work of your spirit in us and among us and in this world, Lord. Wow, in this world, the way that you move to convict people of sin and to convict people of, of righteousness and to convict people, Lord, of judgment. I pray that we'll, Father, just take this not as information, but as a reminder of your immediacy and of the advantage we have in your spirit. To be more, Lord, intent, as we talked about last week, of our abiding in you and with you and living lives because of you. We are so thankful this morning for your righteousness. So thankful that we are not flat out under 7,000 pounds of pressure. But instead, Lord, we are free in your spirit and we will rise when you call us by your righteousness. Praise the Lord, we thank you that you have made us righteous. Father, may we take the judgment of this world seriously. The judgment upon the devil, the judgment upon all who don't confess and believe in Jesus. May we take it seriously, at least, Lord, serious enough to seek the work of your sanctifying spirit in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name.